You're listening to Fuller Curated, a podcast of the best conversations happening at Fuller. It's very good to be in a a location like this. I always get nervous when I realize that half of you may be looking at me on the big screens behind. And many times I've been doing this, I get this sort of sense, I wonder what I look like on that screen. The trouble is, if you try to see, then (laughs) it's... It's, it's one of those postmodern moments. All you see when you look to see what you look like is the back of your own head. Um, I, I have a feeling Jacques Derrida may have said something about that. I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, we're talking about Paul this week. When I, when as a bishop, I take upon myself to talk about Paul, I'm always reminded of the bishop, I can't remember which one it was, who said plaintively, everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. <clears throat> and we might ask ourselves, what have we done to domesticate Paul to avoid the riots and sip the tea instead? What has happened to the explosive, dramatic Pauline gospel if studying it now becomes a leisure activity for those who like that kind of thing to be fitted in between going for a jog and watching our favorite TV program. What was it in the first place that made Paul say what he said and made what he said the focus of so much anger and fear and produced so many riots and beatings and stonings and all the rest of it? Now, Paul knew none better that his gospel was bound to be seen as dangerous nonsense. We need to remind ourselves of that from time to time because those of us who grew up in the church and those of us who've known and loved the gospel and have worshipped together for a long time often take it for granted that this is a fairly sensible thing to believe because it's what we've ordered our lives by. But it hits you in the face when you think what it was like for Paul arriving in Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth or wherever it was. I was reminded of this a few years ago when I was at a conference, an SBL conference in Atlanta, in Georgia, about, I think, 10 or 12 years ago. I was staying in a nice hotel, but away on the other side of the world, the England rugby team was playing in the final of the World Cup, playing against Australia in Australia. Now, you may not know this, but there is nothing that Australian sports people like better than beating England. And England had made it to the final against some fierce and stiff opposition, finally to confront the hosts on their own turf. For some reason, none of the television channels in my hotel were showing this match. Not quite sure why that was. Uh, So I phoned my daughter back in England, knowing she would be glued to the television. And she was ecstatic because England's rugby poster boy, Johnny Wilkinson, had won the game and the cup for England with a drop goal in the final minute of the game. Australia was crestfallen. England was ecstatic. I was ecstatic. And when you have good news like that, you want to share it. So I went out into the hotel lobby. It was about six in the morning, and the only people around were the concierge and some hall porters. I wanted to rush up to them and say, did you hear the news? England just won the cup. I wanted to hug the reception clerk and celebrate. And I realized these people probably don't even know that there was a game being played. They probably don't even know what rugby is. 
You might as well go out on the street in Pasadena and tell the passers-by that Zambia had beaten Zimbabwe at table tennis. You know, it may be good news to you, but it's nonsense to them. It makes no sense at all. Then came the crowning irony. As the day woke up and the conference participants began to arrive for breakfast, I looked around for someone, anyone who knew about the game. And you may have guessed it. The first person I met who knew about the game was an Australian. <laughs> so there I was with wonderful, life-changing news, and it was foolishness to the Americans and a scandal to the Australians. <laughs> but for us who believed, for us who believed, it made us happy for a week. There are lots of boys playing rugby today because when they were little, they saw that match and they wanted to be Johnny Wilkinson when they grew up. Now, those of us who grew up knowing about the Christian faith, as I say, may need reminding that this was what it was like when Paul arrived in a new town. The world has a new Lord and he's called Jesus. What are you talking about? He, he was crucified. Uh, excuse me, but God raised him from the dead. Oh, for goodness sake, give us a break. You, break. you must be crazy. Now he's in charge of the whole world and he's wanting us to join in with what he's doing in his new way of life. Every line in that announcement is either nonsense or it's scandalous or both. And when it becomes clear that for Paul, this message will mean giving up some of the major symbols of your own world, particularly your regular trips to the various temples for festivals, for fun of various sorts, and for prayer in time of distress, in order to make sure that the city and the community are protected against possible dangers. You're going to have to give up all of that because those aren't gods there. They're non-gods and they're bad for your health. Don't go near them. There's a new way of worshipping, a new way. But what are the neighbours going to think? This is dangerous nonsense. What will the authorities think? Might this be bad for business? In Philippi or Ephesus, at least, the answer was yes. This was bad for business. For all those reasons, people got worried and riots were likely. Oh, we don't want this kind of disruptive thing here. Thank you very much. Folly to Gentiles, scandalous to Jews. But, as Paul says in various places, to us, to us, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, about a living God who has acted in Jesus, about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as the turning point of history, the place where heaven and earth come together and do business at last, the place where the old world was condemned and the new world was born, this message carried its own power and, surprisingly, its own new wisdom. It generated a new way of thinking, a new way of knowing, and that power and that wisdom reached out. And even though people, when they first heard it, thought this is absolutely crazy, some people found that it went right deep down inside them and transformed them from top to bottom. And with that transformation, something new came into existence. Not just a new spirituality for individuals, no, a new community, a new way of life, a way of life radically different from anything any of them had known before. From the very beginning, Christianity wasn't an individual sport like table tennis. It was a team sport like rugby. You can't do reconciliation all by yourself. And that's what the gospel was about. It made, quite simply, a world of difference. You can see that world of difference in one small but significant moment in Paul's life. And this is where I start the book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. 
During one of Paul's imprisonments, I'm pretty sure it was when he was in Ephesus, though that could be debated, a young man in trouble came to find him, a slave, Onesimus, who had run away from his master Philemon in a town a day or two's journey up the Lycus Valley. Paul hadn't been to that town, Colossae, but Philemon, Onesimus' his master, seems to have been probably to Ephesus and had met Paul, heard him preach, and he was one of those who had been transformed by the gospel, turned inside out. Philemon had gone back home to Colossae as a Christian. But life is never simple. The gospel produces complications as well as transformations. By the way, in case you're wondering, slavery in the ancient world, this is a sidebar, but quite an important one. Slavery in the ancient world was quite different from the slavery we've known in Western culture in the early modern period, and which tragically we are now seeing again in new forms in parts of the world. Slavery, of course, always involved treating human beings as things, as objects. And for Christians and Jews alike, the foundation story included the story of the Exodus, in which the God who made the world is revealed as the God who sets slaves free. Make no mistake about it. But in the ancient world, be clear about this, slavery had nothing to do with ethnicity or the color of your skin. Anyone could become a slave. All you had to do was lose a battle or perhaps go bankrupt. So although the institution always was dehumanizing, it was a different kind of thing to what the word says to us today. And often slaves could get free either by their freedom or be given their freedom and resume a perfectly ordinary life. So it was a much more complicated thing than we think. And, and uh, we've got to remind ourselves as well that in the ancient world, slavery was how things got done. It was the equivalent of electricity, gasoline, atomic power, and all the other things that we get today to work for us. And the idea of suddenly banning slavery, which we kind of want to say to Paul, you should have done that, that was no more thinkable than it would be for me to tell you here tonight in Los Angeles that you should right now give up driving your car, leave it in the parking lot, get home some other way, and you should also, by the way, give up using electricity when you get back home. That's off limits now. If you want to grumble at Paul for not telling Philemon to free all his slaves at once, then think again. Socially, culturally, that's where they were at. But what Paul does, end of sidebar, is something much more subtle, much more indicative of the new birth which had come with Jesus the Messiah. We tend to go for the grand gesture. We love grand gestures in the Western world particularly. Go on, Paul, we want to say. Tell him slavery is wicked. God is going to set them all free. Well, even if that had been possible, it wouldn't in fact have been as difficult as what Paul is asking of Philemon and also of Onesimus. Paul is asking that they be reconciled, not just that they tolerate each other, not just that they forgive one another at a distance, but of course you never need meat again. No, the gospel for runaway slaves is, first, the good news that God loves them so much that Jesus died for them, but it is, second, the news that the reconciliation they have found with the living God is also the reconciliation that must be put into effect with their brothers and sisters. That was hard for Philemon, it was hard for Onesimus, but it was central to the message and mission of Paul the Apostle. You can see this quite clearly if you, if you contrast Paul's letter to Philemon with a letter by a near contemporary of his, Pliny the Younger. 
We've got a whole collection of Pliny's letters. He was an aristocrat, a lawyer, a politician, a senior civil servant in the imperial bureaucracy. And he had occasion to write to a friend, a social inferior, about a young man in trouble. Not an exact parallel to Philemon and Onesimus, but not too far off either. But when we put the two letters side by side, and this is how I start the book. See, I'm just getting the plug in from time to time, but so you know where we are. Um, when we see them side by side, there are all sorts of subtle differences, which when we think them through, give us a sharp little spotlight on Paul's gospel and the world of difference it made. And particularly on the question of why there was such a thing as Paul's theology why Paul invented something which, with hindsight, we can call Christian theology and what that new intellectual discipline was designed to do. There isn't time to go into the details on Paul and Pliny. You'll have to look at the book for that. But let's just say that in Pliny's letter, nothing changes socially. Oh, he wants his friend to do the decent thing, to be kind after a fashion. But society is not changed. Everyone keeps their place in the social order. Whereas with Paul, something quite radical has happened. He stretches out one hand and says, here is Onesimus. He is my son, my very heart, my second self. And he stretches out the other hand and says, and you Philemon, we are partners. We're in this gospel business together. You owe me your own very self anyway. I want a return on that investment. And as Paul in this letter reaches out to both of them, we see that though he doesn't explicitly mention the death of Jesus in this letter, he is enacting the death of Jesus and its reconciling power in his pastoral ministry. It's no surprise after reading Philemon to discover that when Paul describes his own vocation and ministry in 2 Corinthians, he speaks of it as being a ministry of the new covenant in which hearts are changed, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, a ministry then of new creation in which nothing remains the same, 2 Corinthians 5, and above all, end of 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. In a sense, it would have been much easier for Paul to tell Philemon, oh, by the way, I met that slave of yours, Onesimus, uh, but he's gone away and, and, and I don't know where he is now. And Paul could have said to Onesimus, look, just push off, um, go off to Philippi. There's some nice people there. You need never come back here and then it'll be all much easier. No, that's not how the gospel demand works. The good news of God and the Messiah reconciling the cosmos to himself catches up all those who believe it in the imperative to work for reconciliation at every level. The gospel is good news for runaway slaves, but as with the rest of us, the good news which transforms us makes us for precisely that reason stand up straight and take responsibility for living out the gospel of reconciliation in a new way in a new world, in the new world that God has launched in the Messiah. So the gospel generates a new community, precisely because it is about the generous outflowing love of God in the death of Jesus. It cannot be a message for or about isolated individuals. The ancient world knew a lot about the theory of character formation. Last time I was here at Fuller, I gave a lecture, I seem to recall, on virtue. Um, that book was supposed to be, the book that it turned into was supposed to be called Virtue Reborn. My American publisher said, we can't call 
call it Virtue Reborn because we want to sell this book in Barnes and Noble and Americans don't buy books with the word virtue in the title. I thought, okay, right, you know best. Um, so he called the book After You Believe. Um, in other words, now that you have come to faith, now that you have believed, um, you've said a prayer or whatever, what are you going to do between then and finally when you die and whatever happens after that? As my publisher said, this book is about the embarrassing interval between the baptism and the funeral. It's a nice, um, <laughs> nice line, that. Um, in England, the phrase After You Believe doesn't mean that. I have a good friend who lost his faith and who saw the American edition on a table when he was visiting us. And he said wistfully, after you believe, I guess that's for me. And I thought, uh, no, it isn't actually, sorry. It was an embarrassing moment. Uh, which book do I give him if he wants a book? Whatever. Um, but anyway, the point I'm making is that the New Testament picks up on the notion of character development but it doesn't happen in terms of what Plato or Aristotle would have seen, which is that virtue is something you work on by yourself and for yourself. Christian virtue is equally about character development, but it begins with the sovereign grace of God in the gospel, hence virtue reborn, and it goes to work precisely as a team sport. The greatest of these is love, says Paul. And you can't do love all by yourself. The gospel is all about the new world which was born through the death and resurrection of Jesus and which goes to work through the gospel and the spirit. And as we ponder that new world, that new way of life, which Paul believed the living God was generating and sustaining in these new communities, we become aware of a particular problem, a particular challenge. The central argument that I have made in my recent big book on Paul is all about how Paul developed a strategy to cope with that problem, how he met that challenge with one of the greatest intellectual and spiritual achievements of that age or any age. Let me put it as simply as I can. Paul knew that a community of reconciliation called into being by the gospel of Jesus the Messiah would be a fragile and brittle thing. All kinds of social and cultural and personal pressures would come upon it and it would fall into a thousand fragments. Paul knew in particular that the personal demands of the gospel, demands for love and reconciliation and holiness and transformation of life, that would prove far too much for any community. The strict, tight Jewish community from which he had come had its own ways of meeting the equivalent challenges. They had their cultural markers in place. They knew where they were. Focused on the temple in Jerusalem, even in the diaspora away from Jerusalem, they told the great stories which were echoing the festivals which were taking place in Jerusalem. These stories reminded them of who they were. They circumcised their baby boys as a sign of the covenant so that the very act of generation would be marked by loyalty to the one God. They married within their own people. They kept the strict food laws which marked them out from their pagan neighbors. They had an official exemption from pagan religion. And since in that world religion and society were completely intertwined, they kept apart mostly from the wider world. Okay, there's all sorts of varieties of Judaism, but for Paul from his strict background, this is how it worked. 
Holiness is never easy, but it's easier if you live in a community like that, where everything is demarcated. Likewise, unity is never easy. As I say, there were many different Jewish factions and parties at the time, often with sharp dissension between them. But again, it's a lot easier if you've got those cultural markers to fence you off. That they saw as the job of Israel's law, the Torah, and it did it reasonably effectively. But Paul had glimpsed in the gospel the fact that Israel's God had now done a radically new thing. Nobody had expected a crucified Messiah. Nobody had expected that resurrection was something that would happen to one person in advance of all the others. Nobody in particular had imagined that when the old prophecies were fulfilled and Abraham's family was suddenly extended to a worldwide gathering from every nation under heaven, that such people would not have to become Jews as well. After all, if they were going to give up worshipping idols and serve a living God, how else could they do it? Of course they must become Jews. So the central argument of my book, and the one I invite you to consider with me in these days together, is that Paul's worldview, which had this new community of reconciliation at its heart, needed something new, something different, something which would sustain and enhance the life of unity and holiness to which he knew the gospel had called people. And my proposal, which I think quite radically reshapes the way we think about Paul and his ideas, is that Paul effectively invented not just some new theological dogmas, but a new discipline, a task, an activity, which we might with hindsight call Christian theology. Of course, he didn't call it that, but looking back, we can see that's where it began. This discipline was not simply about working out the different dogmas and teaching them to people and showing how they fitted together. It was about teaching people to think in a new way so that this new thinking as an activity as well as its new content would sustain them in the life of unity and holiness to which they were called. And as I'm saying these words in the context of a great seminary from today's church, it seems to me appropriate that we should remind ourselves that theology is not just something you learn as a subject, nor is it just something for the elite core of Christian intellectuals to have fun with as they write books and attend seminars. Christian theology, in the sense I'm meaning it, is a task for the whole church. You know the saying, give someone a fish and you feed them for a day, teach someone to fish and you feed them for, a, for life. For Paul, it was like that with theology. Teach someone a doctrine and you may keep them sound for a day. Teach the whole church to think into God's new world and you will establish the church as the united and holy community bringing glory to God. That is the challenge of Pauline theology. You see it in obvious passages such as the beginning of Romans 12. The first direct result of the gospel is always worship. The worship of the true God by the whole self. Present your bodies, that's your entire self, to God as a living sacrifice. The community is first and foremost the worshipping community. As we'll see, the primal sin for Paul, as for all Jews, is idolatry. And the primal act of grateful obedience is always the true worship of the true God. But for this to happen, the whole person has to be reoriented. And that means the mind. 
And so in Romans 12, 2, he gives us a mandate which could stand as a rubric at the head of all his developed teaching. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern and work out in practice what God's will is. There is Paul's agenda in a nutshell. A new world has been born and you need new kinds of thinking. The transformation of the mind in order not only to grasp what it is that's happened, but to see, to see what it is that you must now do to live it out. A little letter like Philemon is in itself an exercise in the transformation of the mind. Philemon is not only to act differently, Paul is getting him to think differently. And the same goes for Onesimus as well. The gospel is good news for runaway slaves and everybody else, not just because it says that the true God is the God of the Exodus, the slave-freeing God, but because it teaches masters and slaves alike new ways of thinking, which are designed not to produce pretty patterns of ideas for their own sake, but as Paul says here in Romans 12, new ways of life. Notice how thinking stands there between worship and action. That is Paul's vision. Lots of churches that do worship, fine. Sometimes they're a little light on the thinking and action. Lots of churches that do action, fine. Sometimes a little light on the worship and the thinking. There are some theologians who do thinking and a bit light on worship and action. <laughs> Paul's vision has them all together. And when we study his theology, as this week we're trying to do, we are therefore studying not only a set of topics, but a new way of knowing. Because theology as a task, or even as a set of topics, hardly existed in Paul's day. The Jewish people didn't and still don't do theology in the way that became characteristic in the church. Israel's God had revealed himself in the Torah, and what was required was grateful obedience. Didn't have too much to work out. Nor did the pagan thinkers get very far in their theology. They talked about theology, theologia. You find that word in Plato and Aristotle. But it's simply a sub-branch of the study of the whole world, of physics, of that which is. Well, there are the gods as well, so we write a little bit about them. Not that we know too much about them, but we can guess. But here's the point. Neither for the Jews nor for the ancient pagans did the fresh consideration of who God actually was and what he was doing play any such role as that activity came to play for Paul. For Paul, theology, both as task and as content, was load-bearing in a way it had never been before. If that sounds strange, if in our modern Western churches theology has become a hobby for the speculative intellect rather than a household activity for the community of reconciliation, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that we then find unity and holiness so apparently impossible. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells the church to be little babies when it comes to evil, simply not to know about all the horrible things that go on in the world, but in your thinking to be grown up, to be mature. Our contemporary world, like his, does its best to force us the other way, regaling us in the media with all the sordid details, but stopping us thinking in the new way that goes with God's new world. Paul clearly regards this maturity in thinking 
which by the way is a major topic in the letter to Philippians, we'll come back to that tomorrow, as something for everyone. This isn't about university degrees or an intellectual elite. One of my favorite memories from my years in Durham came from a course that we ran for ordinary parishioners. There are no ordinary parishioners, but you know what I mean. A sort of theology 101 for people who had no formal theological education and in some cases very little formal education of any sort. I remember one old lady well into her 70s who spoke to me after I had handed out the certificates at the end of the course one year. It's a nice course, a bit of Bible, a bit of doctrine, a bit of church history, very basic stuff. And she said to me, she said, you know, Bishop, I've discovered that once you get into this stuff, you'll never be bored again as long as you live. And her face was shining, the lady in her 70s. Christian theology, as conceived by Paul, is load-bearing for the united and holy community in the Messiah. It is for everyone, from runaway slaves to civic officials, from intellectual snobs to illiterate peasants. It is the activity of minds that are being transformed by the gospel, with that thinking taking its proper human maturing place between worship and action. It is indeed foolishness to the Greeks, scandalous to the Jews, but to those who are being saved, both Jew and Greek, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we who try to follow in Paul's footsteps today, and this I think is one of the most urgent tasks for the church right now, we have a double problem as we try to come to terms with what he's saying. First, there is of course much to learn, but second, there is much to unlearn. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everything we've been taught about Paul is wrong and we should give it up. Somebody said in an article about me just recently, rather snide remark, I thought, does he really think that everyone got everything wrong until he happened to take up his pen? Of course I don't think that. Give me a break. (laughs) It is rather that the way the Western church has studied and taught Pauline theology has, in my view, been put in the wrong frame and the frame has produced radical distortions. Part of my aim as a first century historian, which is what I basically am, reading Paul, is gently but firmly to take his theology out of that basically Western medieval frame that it's been in for all these centuries and put it instead into the frame of the actual first century context and community where it really belongs. And as we ourselves move rapidly through changing and shifting cultures, it simply won't do to go on repeating the things we've been taught within the old frame and hoping somehow that they'll still work. We need a different approach, a fully first century approach. As I've said quite often now, we must stop giving 19th century answers to 16th century questions and start giving 21st century answers to first century questions. That is the way forward. So what was the old framework? Well, we got it from the Middle Ages. Thinking of the Middle Ages makes me need a drink, excuse me. Um, If I have a quarrel with the 16th century reformers, it isn't that they said the wrong things, though sometimes they did and they disagreed with one another, etc. It is that they were doing their best to give biblical answers to the wrong questions. 
They took the questions from the late medieval Western period, particularly questions about how to be sure you were going to heaven and preferably without doing time in purgatory in between. They were not talking about God's new creation. They were not talking about the new heaven and the new earth. They were not talking about the resurrection that we are promised into that new world. That's why, as Karl Barth pointed out, the reformers often struggled with their eschatology. The medieval eschatology that you find in, say, Dante, or indeed in Michelangelo's great Sistine Chapel painting, leaves no room for the biblical vision that you find at the end of the book of Revelation, or in Romans 8, or in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll be talking about this in the fourth of these sessions. But eschatology and soteriology, what you think is going to happen ultimately and how God rescues you so you can share in it, they are umbilically related to one another. And if your picture of God's ultimate future is skewed, your picture of how we're going to get to that future will be skewed as well. And so it was. And so many of the Pauline theologies of the last 400 years have been arrangements of Pauline topics which have been designed not to let Paul have his say in his own time and place and context, but to insist that he should comment on our questions, particularly our questions of salvation. Now, don't get me wrong, again, Paul is, of course, a theologian of salvation. I'll be talking more about that tomorrow. By foregrounding the church and its unity, as I've done tonight and as I've done in the book, I am not, as some have suggested, substituting a horizontal soteriology for a vertical one. That geometric image is, in any case, a very blunt instrument for understanding the Bible and Christian truth. Again, I'll come back to that. When we allow Paul to say what he's saying, rather than insisting that he must answer our questions whether he wants to or not, we find that he is challenging not so much what Luther or Calvin were addressing and arguing as rather the framework within which they were thinking, the framework of late medieval piety and salvation theorizing. And along with that went a quite different framework too, politics, economics, religion, philosophy, culture, all of which worked quite differently in the early modern period to how they did in Paul's day. And since Paul did really believe that a new world, an entire new world had come into being through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his gospel was teaching people how to live wisely and faithfully within and for that wider world of politics, economics, religion, and philosophy. Paul was taking every thought captive to obey the Messiah. The transformed mind is not apolitical or non-philosophical or non-religious or non-economic. It sees all these things and more through a new lens. And the new community which comes into being through the gospel is in effect a new polis under a new kyrios a new community under a new Lord, worshipping with a new sort of sacrifice and prayer living a life of generosity and practical sharing, and above all, thinking with a wisdom which outflanks and upstages the great philosophies of its day or any day. Part of the long legacy of Protestant thought the last 400 years is that often, sadly, it has de-skilled us today from doing these things in the fully Pauline way. We have come to Paul looking for a truncated, 
individualized, westernized gospel which lets our politics go their own way, which is frightened of anything religious and so rejects even good Christian liturgy, which has no impact on our economic life and which wouldn't recognize a philosophical debate if it came up and bit it on the knee. We have truncated and domesticated Paul, and it is this that causes bishops to lament that instead of the riots, we just have another cup of tea. And it's within this context that the major debates about Paul have taken place. I'm not going to say very much about this, but I just want to flag it up because those of you who have studied Paul will realize that I am by strong implication taking uh, positions in relation to all sorts of debates that are going on currently. Perhaps the most important and long-lasting debate about Paul is between those who see the centre of Paul's thought as justification by faith and those who see it, uh, the centre, as being being in Christ, incorporation into Christ or participation. On the one side, you have Rudolf Bultmann taking forward a long tradition of Lutheran thought which continues unabated in many circles, including many evangelical circles to this day. Justification, that's the thing. Everything else is secondary. On the other side, you have Albert Schweitzer taking forward a reformed tradition, though now with strong resonances with first century Judaism. Again, this line continues to this day. And the current debates about apocalyptic and salvation history and covenant theology and so on all take their rather complex places within this larger framework. And alongside these debates, that is, the discussion of how to analyze Paul's thought, how his categories actually work, whether he is employing different types of theology, and if so, if they fit together or not, alongside that, we have the old puzzle, is he really a Jewish thinker? Or has he abandoned Jewish categories? Is he really a Greek thinker, Hellenistic thinker? Many in the Protestant traditions have insisted down the years that since justification was central and Paul said justification not by works of the law, that meant that he had basically given up on everything Jewish, so he must have got his central ideas from somewhere else, either from pagan cult or from the Caesar cult even, or perhaps from Gnosticism. And it's why some other Protestants have tried to insist, no, Paul got all his ideas from his conversion. It came whole and entire, so that when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that experience generated all that we find. When others have responded, no, 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 Paul is basically a Jewish thinker. Think of W.D. Davis 50 years ago or Ed Sanders 30 years ago. Then we find that such people have trouble explaining how a Jewish Paul could have a serious critique of Judaism itself, which he really does seem to have done. These are the framing debates of the last generation or so. Questions of how we understand the coherence, if it is coherence, of Paul's thought on the one hand, and questions about his place within the history of thought and particularly religious thought on the other. Though actually, you know, I have a problem about this blessed word religion, another sidebar. In chapter four in the book and then in chapter 13 in the book, um, I discuss what the word religion meant in the first century. It's completely different from what we in the Western world have come to mean by religion today. And if you wanted to say which department of a modern secular university should St. Paul be studied in, religion will be one of the last. Um, if you don't have a department of theology, much better to study Paul in a department.
department of politics or philosophy and not religion, um, as though there is a religion element to Paul, of course there is, um, that's not what we mean by religion is precisely not what he would have meant. Anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. But these debates are important, but they often miss the point. I have argued in my book that Paul was and remained a thoroughly Jewish thinker. I decided some years ago to try out as a thought experiment what might happen if we took the central categories of Jewish thought and imagined them being reworked and reframed around the twin poles of a crucified and risen Messiah on the one hand and the fresh outpouring of God's spirit on the other. And as I've run that thought experiment over the last two decades and developed it and tried it out in different ways, I found it enormously fruitful in terms of fresh understandings of passage after passage in Paul and fresh insights into almost every other aspect of his thought. And as I've gone back again and again to Paul's multiple overlapping worlds, his Jewish world, his Greek world, his Roman imperial world, his philosophical and cultural world, and in this book I've tried to map those quite extensively to make sure that we're not getting too much slippage in this study. Then as I've done that, I've found that the sense Paul makes as a renewed Jewish thinker, if you like, as one who believes that Israel's God has now done the new thing that he'd always promised, even though it was so shatteringly different that it was bound to be scandalous to the Jews themselves, I've found that that sense was a sense which would generate and sustain the life of the community of reconciliation in that cultural and political world. The picture makes sense. Paul's theology, in the way that I'm describing it, really did become load-bearing for a community that would outthink and outlive the worlds of ancient Greece and Rome. My friends, that remains the challenge, to outthink and outlive the wider, confused, muddled worlds in which we live. And for Paul, a community that would live out the heritage of the renewed family of Abraham, in whom the Jewish Torah, though at one level set aside as being no longer necessary for the life of the community, would in another way find a strange and rich fulfillment. I'll come back to all that later. And let me say another important word about this way of approaching Paul. There is a widespread movement in America at the moment, almost nowhere else other than America, but it's powerful here, which describes Paul as, quote, an apocalyptic, unquote, thinker. This blessed word apocalyptic is one of the classic shape shifters of the last century. It means different things to different people. But the present writers I have in mind, and sorry if this is kind of off your comfort zone, but some of you will see just how important this is. Basically, a, a group clustering around the great scholar J. Louis Martin and his big commentary on Galatians in the Anchor Bible. This group take that word as a symbol, signal, that what Paul is talking about is God invading the cosmos to rescue it from the destructive reign of hostile demonic powers. The gospel for Martin and his followers is the good news that in the cross of Jesus, God has overthrown all the powers and launched his new creation, generating a new way of knowing as well as of living. Now, all of that, as you may tell, is something that I too affirm. I think that's very important to say all of that. But where I disagree is the corollary that Martin and the others then draw. 
For them, the gospel of God's vertical invasion of the world, and Martin uses that word invasion again and again, stands over against and rules out any idea of the gospel as fulfilling God's saving purposes in history. Nothing leads up to this invasion, and for some, nothing follows from it either, since this view sometimes opposes a high view of church history just as much as it opposes a high view of Jewish salvation history. For Martin and his colleagues, all that is just so much religion. And Paul opposed religion, says Martin, with a fresh revelation. Strong echoes of Bart and others at this point. And this non-historical invasion thus stands over against all attempts at covenant theology or salvation history. Now, there is much that could be said about this, but not here, you may be glad to know. I will only comment at this point that the word apocalyptic is so contested now as to be almost useless except as a label for a literary genre. Those who have worked most on Jewish apocalypses, I think of John Collins in Yale, Chris Rowland in Oxford, are firmly opposed to the way that Martin and others use this word. In particular, it's important to say that this kind of invasive vertical apocalypse so-called over against any kind of horizontal salvation history is in fact gaining a lot of traction not from the New Testament but from its echoes of 20th century radical philosophical rejection of Hegelian schemes of an imminent process. It has strong affinities with Walter Benjamin's rejection of the imminent Marxist progress which he had formerly embraced. Uh, idea that the world was just progressing towards a better day and finally we reject that no all of that is rubbish and wreckage the apocalypsists say no the revelation comes from the outside without build-up or immanent process but the trouble is in the Jewish world and the Jewish world from which we get apocalypses of various sorts Daniel fourth Ezra whatever Precisely in the Jewish world, as Paul is retrieving and re-inhabiting it, the story of Israel from Abraham forward was never told as a smooth, steady, imminent doctrine of progress. From the histories of the Old Testament, 1-2 Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, through the Psalms and the Prophets, to many of the intertestamental writings, the story of Israel was told as much as a Verdammungsgeschichte, a damnation history, as a Heilsgeschichte, a salvation history. In other words, it was constantly the story of how Israel kept getting it wrong and had to be rescued, sinned wickedly and got punished and then forgiven again. How in particular, the covenant conditions at the end of Deuteronomy were fulfilled when Israel got it wrong so badly that they were sent off into exile in Babylon. In fact, Israel recapitulated in its history the story of humankind in Genesis 3 to 11. That may be part of the point. The commandment was given and broken. Israel was cast out of the garden, out of the promised land, ending up in Babel, in Babylon. And if that primal history was thus repeated in the long and sorry story of the people of God, what was required was precisely a fresh action on God's part. Yes, not a mere continuation of an imminent process. 
as I've argued in various places. Paul, and for that matter, the gospel writers, see the events concerning Jesus not as historically isolated events that might have occurred anywhere or at any time. People sometimes say to me, supposing Jesus had been born in Africa or in China or something, it's just, it's like saying, suppose you could have had different parents. You know, the world just would have been entirely different if that had been the case. No, that's not how they see it. They see the story of Jesus precisely as the strange and unexpected, yet in retrospect utterly appropriate, fulfillments of the ancient promises. And fulfillment doesn't mean that there has been a smooth, steady process up to the light. It's rather a very surprising and shocking thing. This, it now appears, is where the narrative had been going all along, though nobody had seen it coming. One of my graduate students put it like this, God acted shockingly, surprisingly, and invasively as he always said he would. Paul sees the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah and the work of the Spirit as the long-awaited and yet completely unexpected purpose-fulfilling events. You only have to look at the Emmaus Road story in Luke 24. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, but look, he died on a cross. Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe what the prophets had said. This was how it had to be. That's the sequence again and again. And it is this both and, apocalyptic and salvation history, that makes sense of some of Paul's densest and most difficult passages. And in particular, I have argued one more time in the book that Paul, like the other early Christians and like a great many first century Jews, regarded the time in which they were living as the time of extended exile. It was the exile of which Deuteronomy had warned. It had come about in in Babylon, but it had not yet ended. Exile wasn't so much a geographical reality. It was a theological and political condition. Many Jewish scholars of our day say this again and again when they look at that whole Second Temple period. And Daniel 9, if you doubt this, look at Daniel 9 which speaks of a hugely extended exile, not 70 years, but 70 times seven years. And we know from Second Temple texts that many Jewish thinkers were calculating when those 490 years would be up and when, therefore, the ultimate redemption might be expected. And for Paul and the early Christians, this had happened in the events concerning Jesus. God's new day had dawned. The radical evil in the world had been dealt its death blow. God's new creation had been launched in Jesus' resurrection and was being implemented by the Spirit through the gospel. And the community of believers was therefore to be the advance guard of the new creation the people in whom and through whom God's glory would now be revealed to all the world, as the prophets had said. And therefore, to return at last to my basic theme, this new community, consisting to its own surprise of Jews and Gentiles alike, on an equal footing, it had to be given the stability and the framework within which its life could be what, according to Scripture itself, it was supposed to be. And that, I've suggested, meant theology, both as belief and as task, and ultimately as worship and prayer. Belief and task and worship and prayer actually all run together for Paul. It's hard for us with our later categories to see that. We've separated them apart. Paul saw them as an organic whole. How does this actually work? 
This is the framework which is going to structure the remaining three le lectures. There is a basic threefold division in Jewish thought, ancient and modern. And though these three categories all link arms with one another and support one another, it may help to separate them out. In technical language, you're talking about monotheism, election, and eschatology. In popular language, one God, one people of God, one future for God's world. Let me say just a word about how these categories work recognizing that these are not the categories that most modern Pauline theologies have adopted. Jews, as I said, do not do theology in the way that Christians have normally done. That hasn't been necessary within their life. But when Jewish thinkers stand back and say, okay, okay, what is it we basically believe? They answer naturally, there is one God and Israel is his people. And they answer the question of who is this God with reference to the stories, to creation and Exodus particularly. And at once we have monotheism defined in relation to election and vice versa. But why did God choose this people? Sometimes it almost appears, and you get this in a lot of Christian retrievals, sometimes it almost appears as though God chooses Israel just to have some friends, just to have a company of people who are his special people. But elsewhere, a larger vision comes into view. And I'll be talking about this in the third lecture particularly. God called Abraham to undo the sin of Adam and its consequences. Those consequences being, not least, the invasion of the world by hostile powers in Genesis 6 and the result in terms of human pride and arrogance summed up in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Isaiah, famously, Israel is to be the light to the nations, a vocation to which Paul refers even as he revisits it. But if there is one God, the creator, and if Israel is the people of this one God, then you have to have some kind of eschatology. Because at the moment, it certainly doesn't look as though Israel is the people of the one creator God. It looks a real mess. God has got to do something to sort it out. So monotheism plus election equals eschatology. It's almost mathematical. There must be a future. You might remind yourself how odd that is in the ancient world. Dictionaries of early Judaism are bound to have a substantial entry on hope or eschatology. The Oxford Classical Dictionary has no such entry. Oh, you might in the ancient world hope for a better life here or hereafter, but there was no guarantee of such things. It wasn't a major category of thought. But if there is one God, the creator, and if he is a good and wise God, and if you, Israel, after all, are his people, then something's got to happen. Rescue from exile, redemption, new creation, new exodus, resurrection, renewal inward and outward. Eschatology is of the essence. And it is this combination of beliefs, God, Israel, future, which is so characteristic of first century Jews. Many variations there always are, but that combination remains central. And this is what Paul saw fulfilled and radically rethought around Jesus and the Spirit. This is what gave him the framework which would sustain the church as the new polis, the community of reconciliation. This is the thought structure which would outflank the philosophers and take their every thought captive to, into a new obedience. And this is a theology that would sustain the life of worship, of sacrificial love, which is the true religion. And this is the theology that as a task as much as as a syllabus would enable the church to be united and holy and for Paul all this could be summarized in many ways but one obvious way which is the one I've picked would be to speak 
of the faithfulness of this one God, the faithfulness of this one God. God the Creator had not abandoned his creation, but he had come back to rescue it in person, to take back his sovereign control of it from the dark, malevolent, subhuman or superhuman forces which had usurped his rightful rule. Israel's covenant God, who called Abraham to start the family through which this eventual victory would come about, he had not forgotten the covenant. He had fulfilled it in a totally unexpected way through the death and resurrection of Israel's Messiah. Paul believed that in Jesus the Messiah, this one God had done what he told Abraham he would do, even though neither Paul nor his contemporaries had seen it coming for a moment. Even though this new moment had not arrived within a smooth, smooth continuum of salvation history. It was radically new, yet it was after all what God had said he would do. The apocalypse of the gospel was for Paul the unveiling not of a different God or a different purpose, but precisely of the faithfulness of the one God. You can feel the sigh of relief personally, psychologically, theologically, the faithfulness of this one God. And that is why in two famous passages, he speaks of the gospel unveiling, disclosing, apocalypsing the dikaiosunetheu, the righteousness of God. It's as though a great curtain is ripped back when you talk about what God has done in the Messiah. The curtain is pulled back and what you see is a faithful God. That is the basis of it all. This blessed word, dikaiosune, is almost as complex and contested as apocalypse itself. We'll come back to it in the third lecture. At its heart, I believe, it refers to God's covenant faithfulness and hence his creational faithfulness, his faithfulness now unveiled in Jesus the Messiah. Paul then urges the whole church, not simply a small number of professional theologians, to a vocational task the task of learning to think differently, to think with renewed minds and hearts, to think through the gospel and its meaning as the central activity that holds together worship and life, the living sacrifice and the thought-out obedience. And as we follow Paul's trains of thoughts in letter after letter, we find ourselves challenged to think these thoughts in our own context, which are quite different from the 16th century and indeed from those of 20 or 30 years ago in our own lifetimes. And it's my belief, and I hope you'll catch the flavor of this these next couple of days, that giving ourselves not only to the specific beliefs, but to the task of doing Christian theology will reframe and redefine discussions we've been used to having, not only about Paul, but about many other things besides. I will have failed if all we do is go back to the same kind of discussions we used to have and merely add a few exegetical footnotes from time to time to make it a little bit more, more interesting. I believe we can glimpse in Paul a new direction, a new substance, a new vocation, as much for ourselves as for his own churches. The gospel for runaway slaves in Paul's day is also the gospel for new communities in our own day. And I believe this refocused theological task will send us out as it sent Paul's churches out into the wider worlds of politics and religion, philosophy, culture, economics, everything. So that as he says to the Philippians in chapter two, we are to shine like lights in the world. My friends, we will only do that if we are the united 
and holy community. As he says in that same passage, and we will only be united and holy if we are giving ourselves to this task of theology. As again he says in the same passage. Indeed, Philippians 2 itself provides one of the most striking moments in that new theology, not only as teaching, but also as a new kind of thinking. But for that, we must wait till tomorrow. Thank you. You're listening to Fuller Curated. What we're going to do is have a conversation. I want to introduce two of Fuller's faculty who are going to take a few minutes just to briefly uh, respond to what Thomas shared. Then we're going to share in some conversation together, and then we will eventually also include an opportunity to interact with your questions, which you can text and which will ultimately be questions that will appear uh, upon the screen. So let me first introduce Marianne Mai Thompson. She's the George Eldon Ladd Professor of New Testament at Fuller. She's been a part of our faculty since 1985, um, a very uh, respected and beloved person and a person whose scholarship in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, has been uh, very, very significant. Tommy Givens, a much newer part of our faculty, Assistant Professor of New Testament. Also someone who, in a very short period of time, has left a very significant mark on the lives of students that he's touched, and his work is likewise in the New Testament. So we have an opportunity first to just hear briefly from them as they respond and interact a little bit with what Tom has just shared, and then we'll have some conversation together. So Marianne, let me ask you if you would please go first. Let me just begin by saying thank you for being with us. And uh, you will probably not remember this, but in 2001, I wrote you an email (laughs) thanking you for two different books on Jesus. One was the book you had co-written with Marcus Borg, which I was using in a master's class, and one was Jesus and the Victory of God which I was using in a doctoral seminar, and, and, and just to say thank you for the ways that your historically sensitive work had made it possible for many of us to read the Gospels anew with passion, and uh, it was a great contribution, and I, and, and I feel much the same way tonight about the way you have helped us to read Paul afresh, so thank you. First, a story, and then a kind of a question about... Well, a few years ago, when I was in college, my first uh, uh, professor of New Testament was Gordon Fee. And Gordon once said in class, in the context of a class on Paul, I think, or New Testament theology, if I could only have two epistles from Paul, or maybe the New Testament, I would take Galatians and Philemon. Galatians because it shows you what the gospel is, and Philemon because it shows you it works. And I have always remembered this, but it dawned on me recently. I remembered it without actually having any idea of what he probably meant when he said that. And in my mind, I probably thought he meant something like, the gospel tells us how we get saved, and Philemon tells us, you know, what? That that we're reconciled to each other. But it had never occurred to me, I think, to see the connection so closely or to think that Galatians also told us both aspects of the story, the way Philemon told us both aspects of the story. And you highlight that well in your book uh, when you talk about Philemon. I think what, what I am interested to maybe get you to talk a little bit more about is the idea that you say Paul effectively invented Christian theology. And I think we could probably add, um, to characterize your position, 
for, for community formation, for community stability, for the life, life of the community. Now, invented is a, uh, what? A, a deliberately provocative word, I suspect. Uh, it's a strong claim you're staking, as is the, the use of the term theology itself, that what he invents is theology, because I think a number of times we read in books on Paul, you know, He's not a systematic theologian. Sure, he did some pastoral theology and so on. So I wonder, I'm thinking of a couple of things. One is the, um, how much it matters, or could you talk a little bit more about the idea that Paul invented this? And I'm thinking, for example, of you talk about monotheism, election, and eschatology. In many ways, you could argue that Jesus himself addresses each of those issues in ways that get him in trouble and that could seem to be dangerous nonsense when he talks about ways in which the people of God is reconfigured. Or when Paul talks about monotheism, um, you yourself build on the work of uh, Richard Bauckham and Larry Hurtado and Martin Hengel and others who say, you know, before Paul ever wrote a word, there had been an explosion in Christological thought so that they were already rethinking categories of monotheism. And then I think about letters like Hebrews, which is doing something not unlike what Paul is doing. Um, or even First Peter, which is telling a story about uh, the way, it, what it means to live in Christ. And so I'm thinking of both the before and the after Paul, and even into the apostolic fathers. You know, did, did they forget everything Paul said? Did, how do they remember it? How does that shape them? But it's just a way of, of asking the question when you say invented Christian theology or the first Christian theologian, where are you sort of willing to let that bleed, you know, into the past and into the future and, and, and gather up some strands of what other Christians were already struggling to do? Did Paul just do it better? You know, you talk about Paul in his Jewish and his pagan context, and no one was doing this, but were Christians doing it? You know, and, and how does Paul fit into that scenario? So maybe we can uh, get some chance to get you to talk about that invented, and then exactly what it is that he invented when he invented theology. Mm, nice question. You want me to respond? Please. I couldn't remember how we're doing this. Yeah, uh, thank you, Marianne. That, that's, that's, um, I confess I had completely forgotten that email from 2001, <laughs> but it's nice. With, with all kinds of warnings from Westminster Abbey, I think, about how this wasn't official or anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 quite likely. Um, w when I read Paul and read other writers, both before him and after him, um, and it may just be because I've studied Paul intensively and I haven't studied, say, First Peter as intensively as I've studied, say, Romans. Um, but even Hebrews, which I think is a brilliant piece of writing, an extraordinary piece of writing, I think Paul is a towering intellect on a par with, I would say, Plato or Aristotle, um, in that he's pulling to... That was a good squeal. That was exactly <laughs> what we needed just then. Um, yeah, yay, let's hear it for... Um, the... the, the um, uh, the sense of the range and the depth and the and the subtlety of his biblical use, etc., etc., is just massive. And I don't think intellects like that come along very yeah. often. And I, I don't think it would be plausible to say that there were unknown figures prior to Paul who were doing exactly this kind of thing. Um, yes, Jesus, of course, is in his parables, in his teachings, in what he's doing. He is addressing those issues of what's God up to now. What is the kingdom of God looking like? But I don't think he is in the same way um, 
urging people to a particular task in the way that Paul is urging his community. It's like, you know, Jesus never addressed the issue of circumcision. That's just one example. But, but mm-hmm. um, it, you don't need to until you're right. out there in the, in the Gentile world. And, and Paul is faced with a new challenge of holding together and sanctifying this very different community that though I believe Jesus envisaged that there would be such a community, mm-hmm. Jesus wasn't doing yeah. that yet. He was doing something very bound in his, into his own particular uh, agenda. So... In terms of Paul's immediate predecessors, yes, it's perfectly possible because actually one of the interesting things, and I don't think I've said this tonight, I don't think I'll say it tomorrow necessarily, is that when Paul is talking about his very high Christology, it doesn't seem to be controversial. He never has to sort of argue it or make a fuss about it or say, now some of you haven't quite grasped this. It seems to be common coin, one God, one Lord, etc. And that means, yes, there had been an explosion already. What I think he invented, and I'll stick by that word at least for tonight for the sake of argument, keep you awake, um, is um, the theology as a, as a task, as an activity, this challenge to a community um, to be renewed in mind so that thus and only thus could they grasp this. So, I mean, he is then gathering up stuff that was already going on, exegesis that was going on at least from Jesus on the road to Emmaus, you know, in, interpreting all the scriptures concerning himself. So, in a sense, Paul is the heir of that, but he's drawing it together and shaping it as an agenda, as a task, as a way of life for a community. And I really do think that, as far as we know, is new, um, so that his interlocutors in Antioch, in the incident recorded in Galatians, I think he would say their real problem is they haven't started to think Christianly. They're just uh, winging it with bits and pieces of this and that. In terms of his successors, um, I mean, yes, Hebrews, yes, First Peter, yes, Revelation in a very different mode, but very rich theology. But um, I think they are continuing a work which Paul is the pioneer for. Um, one of the sort of disappointments that I have when I read, say, Ignatius of Antioch, I have a huge respect for Ignatius of Antioch but but you know he's intellectually he's just not on the not in the same league at all he's a wonderful faithful wise interesting guy but but he's not doing the same kind of multi-layered subtle stuff and I think the other thing is in terms of the engagement that Paul seems to be modeling and taking forward um, something which is hugely interesting in terms of as he says, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I I just don't think that's, as far as we can tell, going on before. And it's because he's earthing this community in this task that he's able actually to look and... Paul knew the world of ancient philosophy. He lived in Tarsus, which is one of its main centres. So he's able to engage with Stoic ideas. He's able to engage with what's going on on the street and with political and cultural ideas as well. I don't know that anyone before Paul is really articulating the gospel in such a way that it is absolutely in your face to Caesar in the way that I think it is. Uh, in a subtle way, not, not in a kind of a low-grade way, but, but in, in a sort of outflanking way um, that Jesus is Lord um, and Caesar isn't. You know, I, I, not in, I say not in a cheap and cheerful way, but in quite a subtle and interesting way. And I, I think these are all part of what Paul would see as the theological task. And when people say he isn't a systematic theologian, that's a kind of mantra, by the way, in New Testament studies. It's one of the entry tickets that you have to say when you sign on as a member of SBL. Paul was not a systematic. <laughs> okay, you're in, you'll do. You know. um, and and what, that, what that means is we learned some theology in Sunday school and it was very neat and packaged. And then we started to study Paul in college and it was much more interesting than that. So it's basically a way of saying we've escaped from the little box before. But actually, Paul is a huge, massive, sprawling thinker. But when you get into his world, 
the stuff joins up in the most amazing way. And it seems to me some of the greatest systematic theologians um, in many traditions have done what Paul did, lots and lots of occasional pieces, yeah. which nevertheless bear witness to it. I was talking about Leslie Newbegin with somebody today at lunchtime, and Leslie never wrote a systematic theology, but Leslie was a coherent thinker on many fronts. So I think Paul is doing that kind of thing. Tommy, let's have an opportunity to hear from you. Thank you, and uh, similar thanks for being with us and the presentation tonight. And in my case, I feel like I owe a special uh, word of thanks because I've grown up in some ways as a Christian under your influence. Uh, so I was exposed to you relatively early in seminary, and it's been life-giving. Uh, it's also caused me a hell of a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> so... I'm still picking up some of the pieces. I want to direct your attention to two subjects that you touched on in various ways in your presentation, uh, Judaism and politics. And my intent here is to offer a little critical pushback, uh, but anticipating because I know where you're coming from, how you might elaborate what you've said. First, Judaism, uh, as you know well, and you mentioned Bart several times, Karl Bart, in your presentation, uh, Christians have made a life out of building their account of God and their life together on the backs of Jews. And you've given us various gestures towards the ways in which Paul remains a Jew, in which Paul is appealing to the Jewish past, to the fulfillment of the Jewish prophets, and yet, at the same time, there is an abiding concern to distinguish what Paul is doing uh, from Judaism. Uh, and you've acknowledged that there's a variety of Judaisms going on and whatnot. But the reason I think this is so significant is that, and this is going to flow into the politics question, uh, this uh, sort of, we are the new people of God, and everything that we have gained, we gained uh, at the loss of the Jews, um, or so it has been, and so much of the Christian reception of Paul has generated a massive, massive political fallout, not only against Jews in particular, uh, but also uh, giving whole societies a sense of being the new Israel. This is part of our own history here in North America, your own from Great Britain, and a sense that we somehow embody exclusively the people of God having disinherited the Jews uh, from that and as a result uh, possessing a sort of knowledge of God that allows us to police the world, to conform it to our image uh, because we are now the one people of God. So how do we uh, read Paul so as to subvert this kind of violent political legacy? Uh, that's a question that I'd love for you to respond to. It flows into the politics question because, as you probably know, we're in the midst of a significant immigration debate uh, here in the U.S. and some of us advocating strongly for uh, a change in law that would provide much more favorable conditions uh, for people who have migrated to this country from various parts of the world, but especially from Latin America. And part of the reason that has been so difficult is that it seems that the society here in the U.S. has come to believe itself entitled 
uh, to a set of goods that we should protect against those who are coming from without. And so it has made life in many ways living hell for immigrants uh, who are not a part of the one nation under God uh, here in the US. So politically speaking, you talked about how uh, unlike much of what we have been saying about Paul since the 16th century and before, uh, there is a strong political edge to what Paul is saying relative to uh, Roman imperial authority. And there's also a political nature to the sort of community that he's in the business of forming by the power of this gospel that he is claiming. It's very popular today. We're all uh, very quick to be anti-empire. You know, we're anti-US empire, we're enlightened, this sort of thing. But I think that's much too easy. And Paul is in the business of a very subtle kind of politics, it seems to me. So you talk about how this gospel of Paul's has political ramifications at all levels. And I wonder if you might elaborate a little bit on that so that we wouldn't find ourselves playing into a sort of uh, political gospel that simply reinforces the existing structures of society today and claims them for Christ. Uh, Paul, it seems to me to be as much more subversive than that. And this is where maybe you could say a little bit about how the cross of Jesus and what that means for how we relate to those who threaten us lies at the very heart of the politics of Paul's gospel. Wow, thank you. Great questions. And um, the, the super questions, thank you very much. And the, the, I'm afraid the short answer, and as you will know, is um, that chapter 12 of the book is all about the political issue. Yeah. And, and chapter, I mean, the reason I say that is this, that it'll be impossible in the next two or sure. three minutes for me to nuance exactly as I would wish to all the fine-tuning that would really be required for those splendid questions. And, and in Chapter 15, I've struggled as best I can with the, the first of your questions, the question about Paul and um, his Jewish world and how all that plays out. And obviously, again, the short Pauline answer to that one is Romans 9 to 11. And um, it does seem to me, I mean, let's put it like this. If Paul had not believed that the community that believed in Jesus was the single family that God promised to Abraham, then he really made a big blunder in the way that he wrote Galatians 3 or Romans 4 or whatever. If he believed that actually, yeah, the Jews were doing their own thing and we were doing something quite different, he should just have said, um, then why you guys are talking about Abraham because that's irrelevant. And some people would have liked him to have said that. And here, here's the oddity about the whole sort of church and the Jews thing. If you talk about fulfillment, from some points of view, you're actually affirming the goodness and God-givenness of the Jewish traditions. And then you're saying, and God has brought these to this surprising fulfillment, and we are grateful for that. If you don't do that, and you say, um, no, we are doing something completely different, then what you're effectively doing is inventing a non-Jewish sort of religion, which quickly, history shows, non-Jewish sorts of religion become anti-Jewish sorts yeah. of religion. Um, so you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, the, the, the critical move, which I think is much easier for us to see now because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, is to say that throughout the Second Temple period, there were many Jewish movements who were claiming explicitly or implicitly that God was renewing the covenant with them and not elsewhere. 
Um, when we had the discussion at the International SPL meeting last year, and we, we hit this point in discussion between Marty de Boer and Marcus Bockmuehl, with myself sort of in between the two, Marcus Bockmuehl said remarkably, he said, well, Qumran was supersessionist. He said, um, you know, the, the, the Bar Kokhva revolt was supersessionist because it's claiming that Bar Kokhva is the Messiah, and unless you follow him, you're not being a true Jew. And then he even said, um, the Mishnah is supersessionist because it's saying, this is what Judaism is now to look like, and anyone who thinks it looks differently, you know, Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1, you've got all Israel has a share in the age to come, except, 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 except. People who say this do that. You know, the, so John Levinson says at one point, I think I quote him in the book, that the most Jewish thing about early Christianity is its supersessionism. Um, and I think that that's an important paradox to grasp onto, because at that time, lots of people are saying, <clears throat> God is renewing the covenant with us, and that means that, well, either he is or he isn't. And if we're right, then that means this is where it's all happening. And we, we are worried about other Jews who aren't in, and we wish they would come and join us. And I think that's exactly where Paul is starting in Romans 9. <clears throat> if this isn't the case, why his tears in Romans 9? Why his heart's desire and prayer for them in Romans 10? He could have said, um, but I realize I shouldn't pray that prayer because it's silly or something. So you have to wrestle with that. Now, here's the problem. The, 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 the situation you describe, I think, came out, well, partly under Constantine. I know it's fashionable in America to knock Constantine, but as you said yourself about other things, that's just too cheap and cheerful. It, 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 history is more complicated. You know, face it, if you've been persecuted out of your skulls for 250 years, and then the emperor comes and says to you, actually, there's rather a lot of you, maybe we'd better allow you to be an official religion or something, you're not going to say, oh, oh no, please go on persecuting us because it's so much more authentic for us to be a beleaguered minority. You know, you're, you know, you're going to say, okay, this is going to be difficult, we're not sure we're going to manage it, we'll make some mistakes, but we'll give it a go, and that's what they did. Now, but ever since then, um, that question of if we're right, then the Jews are wrong, so let's get rid of them. Um, that got traction because the church forgot Romans 9 to 11. And I think if you go back through the exegetical tradition, you will see that Romans 9 to 11 was either forgotten or misused as a bit of dogma about um, election or something, rather than actually wrestling with the issue Paul's wrestling with. And then the situation you describe in terms of nations considering themselves to be the chosen people arises particularly with 17th and 18th century post-millennialism, it seems to me. Um, and it's actually a peculiarly modern phenomenon. It may have happened before, but I think it was particularly in the modern period. And then it gets special traction from the Enlightenment and the nations that are founded on Enlightenment, i.e. America and France particularly, modern Germany to a lesser extent, um, they actually say, we are now the enlightened ones. And you put together the post-millennial sense of we are the new Israel with the enlightenment sense of we are the superior ones because we're enlightened. And then you have big trouble. And that does play out in precisely into the political issues you're talking about. But as we unpick that and see all the strands by which we've got into the muddles that we've got to, it seems to me that's when we have to go back to the first century and say, there isn't a genealogy that goes straight from Paul into this stuff. Yes, we have to take responsibility for where we've got to, but that doesn't mean we have to play fast and loose with what Paul is actually saying in order to fiddle those books to correct our current mistakes. They need correcting somewhere quite, quite else. Last remark, but this conversation can go on a long time, obviously, mm -hmm. but, but this is an important remark. 
In the so-called new perspective on Paul since the 70s, we have learned that Paul was addressing first century questions, not 16th century ones. And that's very hard for some people to get hold of. Now that we've discovered that Paul is relevant politically as well, there's a real danger we will make the same mistake mm -hmm. and hence some of the easy, cheap and cheerful anti-empire things of imagining that if Paul is writing about politics, he's writing about our politics. Mm -hmm. He isn't. Paul was innocent of the left-right spectrum that we think about. Paul, Paul was, you know, he just, they just didn't live in that world. And we need to examine much more closely how their political structures and power structures worked in order to see what purchase Paul's critique had there. And there I fully agree with you that for Paul to put the cross in the middle of the picture is just explosive. The cross was a weapon of imperial oppression. Um, and to take that and to say that actually it's the sign of the kingdom of God um, that goes on and on and on into all kinds of other issues. We could go on, but that's probably, yeah. We want to save some time for the audience to be able to ask some questions, but let me just be sure that we've got a, another little piece of what you've said tonight clear before we go on, because it seems so foundational to what you're going to continue to say. You've talked about Paul as the inventor of, of Christian theology, and you've talked at, at a number of points about the significance of mind, of the transformation of our mind. Like uh, the rereading of history through the 16th century rather than the first century, I want to be sure that we're hearing your use of mind not through the 18th century, but through the first century. So when you say Paul is calling us to the transformation of our minds, what does that mean? Especially I'm thinking of how easy it is in a, in a context in which in a postmodern world, the critique of mind and of the, the emptiness and, and limitations of reason are so much at stake. It seems particularly important that we understand what it is that's actually happening. Is your... Uh, call or Paul's call to us an intellectual call of reason or is it something more and if it's something more then in what way is it more it's a both and probably but how would you respond to yeah, that yeah uh, of, uh, of course it's a both and I'm an Anglican that's what we do um, <laughs> the, um, it, this is hugely complex of course because the words Paul uses like noose and so on and phronesis um, and similar words which he plays around with and does different things, especially, as I said, in Philippians. Very interestingly, why there? That's a good question. Um, uh, these have their resonances within the world of Plato and Aristotle, within the worlds of Stoicism, etc. Um, and they have to be studied carefully within that context. But again and again, precisely because he's talking about the renewing of the mind, like the whole virtue reborn thing, um, it, it's, it's about... Paul seeing that this is part of what it means to be a God-given human being and that being transformed or being grown up in your thinking, um, as in 1 Corinthians 14, um, he seems to be reaching after. And I think, I think what he's saying is, in the resurrection, God has launched his new creation. A new world has come into being and there must be new modes of knowing appropriate for that. It's like when when the astronomers speculate that there may be some object out there zillions of miles away and they haven't got telescopes that can see it yet, but they will invent new forms of observation appropriate for the new stuff which they think is out there. In the same way, it seems to me, the new world, it's like Jesus saying, unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. It seems to me there's something to do with a new form of knowing which is appropriate for the new world that is beginning. Now, that form of knowing then takes up the existing forms of knowing and transcends and transforms them in the same way that Jesus 
dead body after the crucifixion was taken up and transformed into being uh, a now a non-corrupting body that was equally at home in heaven and on earth. And it seems to me what Paul is talking about is is that the whole human being, including the mind, whatever precisely we mean by that, can, can be taken up in that way. Now, of course, we are the heirs of 18th century rationalism, if we're not careful, or um, postmodern anti-rationalism. And I think um, the danger there was that rationalism exalted one form of knowing, a sort of calculating form of knowing, and made it the be-all and end-all in a way which was incredibly destructive and reductive and negative. One of the great advantages of postmodernity, it seems to me, is that we've thrown all the cards in the air and now at last we've actually said to ourselves, as some of us were saying last night, that things like imagination and music and art go together with thinking. It's not that we do that stuff over there and then we do the thinking over here. There is a much bigger, and I think that's to do with new creation. And so despite the negativity of postmodernity, I see all sorts of possibilities. Um, and I see Christian theology as taking its place cheerfully within that larger mix of, of music, of imagination, of culture, and, and so on, and of the whole of society. We know things in a wide variety of ways. And I think we know that we know things in a wide variety of ways. It's just that philosophers often have talked as though it's just this little thing called reason. So I think the transformed mind is to do with taking up those God-given faculties and praying that we will be enabled to love God with our minds. And the fact that it's odd to th for in the rationalistic world to think about love and mind in the same sentence shows what is required for this transformation. Um, all, all I've really done is stir the pot about three times in different directions, but I hope that's enough so, to, so to keep it cooking. I do want to push it on a, a bit more because you've given it to us as the central call of the church to do this work of theology. So let me just ask this. Are you saying then that the work of doing theology is this integrated act of, of how we perceive ourselves, our neighbor, and God, and integrate it into our life and our action. Is that, and it happens for different people in different capacities. I'm just thinking of the range of yeah, intellect. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. certainly not saying this is for the most elite intellects. You're, you actually specifically said it was uh, not that. So help us understand yeah, what that I, means. I'm saying it's a task for the whole church. And, and the task of theology, as I think Paul conceives it, is scriptural, it's prayerful, it's communal, it's, it's engaged with the world, but it's to do with the reflection uh, which, again, comes into and out of worship, reflection of who exactly God is. And that's, you might think that that's a given. We say the creeds, we know who God is. Well, actually, no, we don't, because um, John says, um, no one has ever seen God. It's the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father. He's made him known. And Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. And so the quest to know God is the quest to find out more about who Jesus is, and we will never get to the end of that. I mean, it's, it's just a constant thing. And... and one of those things, again, to use the telescope and astronomy metaphor, that as we mature as Christians, um, the telescope gets either cleaned or gets better lenses or something, and we are able to perceive more of who God is. But we, that's not an individual thing. We, can't, we need one another to do it. And so teachers within the church and the body of Christ together in local things, in a local Bible study or in a church synod or whatever, this is the task that we must always be doing. The danger that, I mean, what I'm pushing against is the idea that you can get unity or church organization um, by committee, by decision, whatever, without the prayerful scripture-based wrestling with these big questions 
Um, you know, when the big questions come, as they do in every generation to the church, the answer is not, let's have a committee to sort this one out. <clears throat> it's we, uh, uh, interesting point. When John Zizulus came to the Church of England General Synod once, and he saw us debating all manner of things, then some of us had lunch with him. <clears throat> and his point was, is, uh, as a Greek Orthodox, he said, this is very interesting, but it is not a synod. Hmm. because for him a synod would have been about prayer and worship and so on and wrestling with the issues much more overtly and explicitly within that context. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if there would be a way of sharpening our sense of the task of theology insofar as it involves the mind in relation to Paul with the very texts that have figured so prominently in your presentation, Romans 12, Philippians Two, uh, we have the use of nous there for mind in Romans 12, phronesis, phroneo in Philippians 2. And in both cases, the argument does not turn after there is this imperative about the transformation of the mind or the adoption of the mentality of Christ to an activity that is happening behind a desk. It very quickly moves to the way that we treat one another. Exactly. How will you regard exactly. yourselves in exactly. relation to one another? Don't regard yourselves higher exactly. than you ought. Exactly. And then in Romans 12, flowing very quickly into this vision of the community as a united body. And then in mm -hmm. Philippians 2, a mentality of self-giving that is able to be hospitable in the face yeah. of great difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that sense of intellectual formation that is actually uh, dependent, forged in a certain kind of social interaction and dynamic, I think is a, a notion of intellectual formation that's quite alien to what counts as theology in most of our minds. And so to talk about mind in those more explicitly social terms, yeah. I think could help sharpen what we mean by uh, theology as transformation of the mind. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. And and actually, um, I think it's tomorrow morning's lecture. I do go to Philippians 2 with that exactly in mind. In mind. Um, and uh, But you could also go to Romans 8, where it's the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. And, and the, the Philippians passage is about unity and the Romans passage is about holiness. And again and again, these two themes just keep coming up. And if you're not thinking in this renewed way, unity and holiness are just not going to happen. But, I mean, just as an example, I have found in my own life that as a pastor, I will sometimes say I'm preparing three or four people for confirmation or something. Some of the issues that they raise and that I'm wrestling with or talking some, with someone pastorally, it, it draws out of me stuff that I didn't know was there and which I will then think, oh my goodness, Maybe that's what this passage of scripture means or whatever. Then you go back and look at the commentaries. And um, in other words, the life of the community forces you to think harder than you might have done if you were simply being a detached um, academic brain, as it were. We've captured a number of comments uh, and questions that people have raised in the audience. And so we're going to take a couple of those tonight before we close. So I think they're going to be flashed up on the screen if we want to receive our first question. Dr. Wright rightly emphasizes the need to think theologically in order to move toward unity and holiness. What also is the role of the Holy Spirit in establishing our unity and holiness? Yeah. Submitting questions, we're advised to do. We'll save them until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, 
so many areas of Christian life thought practice, um, sometimes in the New Testament it can be said entirely in terms of the Spirit, sometimes it can be said in terms entirely of, of what people do. And when you get those passages which draw them together, you get strange passages like Romans 8 where the Spirit bears witness with our spirit and we're never quite sure sometimes whether to put a capital S or not. And, and that, I think, tells us something very important, that when the Holy Spirit is at work, um, this doesn't rule out or cancel human thinking, agency, etc. I mean, the Spirit can do whatever the Spirit wants to do. Sometimes the Spirit can blast through and force an issue on us. But it seems that in the New Testament itself, and certainly in the long experience of the church, the signs of the Spirit being at work are not that people just float along and ideas happen and whatever, but that they do the hard work. Um, and this happens at every level of church life. I once worked with somebody who was absolutely brilliant man, but who had no strategic thinking at all about him. And it's actually very difficult to work with somebody like that because his answer to every problem was he would go and pray about it and then bang, this would happen and believed in the Holy Spirit. And I, I would say, well, actually, I find that often the Spirit seems to work when I sit down with a pencil and paper and say, suppose we do this and suppose it works like that. And it's got, I think it's got to be a both and. Um, it, it's, it is difficult because I want to emphasize the sovereignty of the Spirit, but, but precisely because of who the Spirit is and who we are as human beings, the Spirit's sovereign work enhances our humanness rather than destroying it, and part of that enhancing is the work of transformed thinking. Tommy or Marianne? My initial uh, thought was, why wouldn't we say more about economy? About? Economy in relation to the Spirit. So often when Paul invokes the Spirit, it seems to me it is about how people are being empowered to share with one another uh, the gifts that they are as a body of people, but also the material possessions that they uh, have some limited control over. And so I think these days we get away with talking about unity in a very cheap manner because it doesn't actually involve any kind of rigorous commitment to economic sharing with one another. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I wonder if here our Christian rhetoric might be disciplined by Paul yeah. so that we're forced to say when we mean one community, we mean this kind of coming to the aid of one another uh, economically, materially, sharing of possessions that cuts very hard against the grain of our social and economic formations. I, I Just two very quick comments on that. First, yeah, in First Thessalonians, um, when Paul says, I know that you already love one another, but I want you to do it more and more, as I've often said to students, he doesn't mean I know you have warm, fuzzy feelings for one another. I want you to have even warmer and fuzzier feelings for one another. He means, I know you're already doing this practical sharing. Please, will you work at developing that? So much so that you then run in the Thessalonian correspondence into the difficulties of people who think, oh, good, uh, we get a free lunch here. Um, let's just sign on. And, and already, right in the very beginning of the church, that wouldn't, the danger of freeloading wouldn't happen unless the church was that sort of community. The second thing to say is that 
had I wanted to make the book just a little bit longer, because it was, after all, rather short, um, there, there could have been a whole chapter on economics. But happily, Bruce Longenecker's book, Remember the Poor, a plug for a great recent book, Bruce Longenecker, who's now teaching at Baylor, Remember the Poor, which is about basically the economics of Paul's gospel. And that's something, as you say, we've completely screened it out, and I pr probably should have included stuff in, in the book on that. A little bit in Chapter 16, but nothing much. Yeah. Marianne, did you want to add? I don't know that I have uh, a lot that I was thinking of the phrase, uh, you know, to set the mind on the spirit mm -hmm. is... And then you, if that's the right translation. It will, okay, if it's the yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you know. it's tophronima to, 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 to tuplumatos, isn't it? So the mind of the spirit. The mind spirit. of the yeah, spirit. Yeah, yeah. But mm. you, you would get much the same thing. In other yeah. words, there's, a, there's a, an orientation of self to the spirit so that the spirit affects the things that we've set our minds on. And mm. so, so when you ask the question, where does the spirit enter in, the complexity of it, that mm. the spirit is what works in us to affect the things that we also set our minds on yeah 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 that's important i mean uh, but but the very the very fact that it's difficult to translate what yeah. paul is saying there is an indication that something is uh, very close up for him which our natural thought patterns um, resist, resist and, and, and kind of pushing back against. And but that's partly what you mean by theology as well, exactly. that living and, and how one, how, yeah. how the spirit changes our minds, not just our minds, but how it affects our living, our, yeah. our, out our, of that. our, right. our fellowship mm -hmm. and those right. things as well. Right. right? I mean, by theology, you mean the whole thing yeah and, yeah and i mean first corinthians 13 would be an example of it, doing theology absolutely well. absolutely and i mean here i am i suppose very much on all fours with some of the greek orthodox writings and going right back to the patristic period for whom theologia is is the task of prayer it's the task yeah. of the whole church um, and it includes um the very hard-nosed intellectual explorations and expositions but that's not something other than the life of prayer and and I, I was determined and finally I found the way to do it to bring the book to a close mm. by showing that Paul is a man of prayer and that for him prayer and theology are very much the same thing I mean let, let me just say this because it's it's directly related to that we've mentioned Romans 9 to 11 Romans 9 to 11 begins and ends with prayer and those prayers are very much in the Jewish prayer mode you begin with lament and you end with praise and halfway between those at the beginning of Romans 10 is intercession so that's one of the greatest theological set pieces anywhere in Paul and it is framed as and structured as one whole prayer and uh, you know we, we forget that at our peril I think let's take just one more question tonight if Paul was writing a letter to the church in America today what warnings and admonitions encouragements and affirmations do you think he'd give <laughs> let's hear the affirmations Tom <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the affirmations are, um, you know, there's this great college in Pasadena, and I'm so glad you people are doing this stuff. Um, I think come to Fuller would be the slogan. Yeah, exactly, slogan, exactly. Right? that's what I meant, yes, yes. Um, I mean, I, I've said it last night, and I've said it, I'll say it again. I think our easy collusion with disunity would not just dismay him, it, he would just be unable to comprehend how the Christian church had got to the point where it really didn't matter that people drove off on Sundays past this church because they wanted to go to that one and so on. But for him, being church is being part of a community. And, you know, 
he just wouldn't see that going on in many places. He would, he would in some places, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, and oh, I say in America, okay, but we do this in Britain as well. It's just that America is so much larger and everything is expanded. Um, I, I think as well, we mentioned the Enlightenment. Um, there's a huge swathe of what I see as a Brit coming to America quite frequently of Enlightenment subculture, um, the split-level world of the Enlightenment, the Epicurean world, which sees gods as a long way away and we're just doing stuff down here, which then plays out in church-state discussions, etc. Um, I think, and again, we in Britain are partly guilty of this, but not as much as some of the Enlightenment nations like America or France. Um, it's been so much part of the American culture that it is taken yeah. for granted. And there are so many other things which go with that culture, which um, I think he would just be unable to comprehend how Christians couldn't make a priority of, say, care of the poor. Um, that's so basic in the New Testament. And I know many, many churches in America do actually make the poor a priority. But structurally and in terms of how you order society, I think he would say, we've all got a long way to go. And, and we in Britain have as well. I'm very careful to say that because... It's not we're getting it right. Tell me, Marianne, do you want to add? Yeah, I, Tom, I asked you this earlier, and so I raised it again for the sake of discussion. Um, Tom, Paul would show up in America and uh, be dismayed at the unity of the church. Oh, disunity. Disunity. Yeah. What, what do you think he would need to see concretely, small, big? What would it look like for him not to be dismayed? In other words, presumably not you know, either one giant church or, uh, in other words, what, what would it be that would constitute for him yeah. <clears throat> a, a, an adequate expression, a faithful yeah. expression yeah. of the one body of Christ? Uh, I, I think Paul would want to see eventually or want to see people aiming at, I mean, the, the idea of one giant church sounds monolithic, megalithic, a bit totalitarian. But people and, often think that unity, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. sort of. Well, yes, at the same time, um, that sort of unity has its dangers, but disunity is far, far more dangerous. I mean, in my country, and I suspect here, one of the reasons that politicians and the media can take very little notice of the church is because we're not speaking with one voice. Mm -hmm. So at least if the churches, such as they are, were able to try to speak with one voice on major issues, and I know how difficult that would be. Um, on the other hand, there are some issues which we, we could try to do that. I mean, where we are at the moment is not one step away from where we ought to be. It's probably about 20 or 200 steps away from where we ought to be. And the real question is if we were to think prayerfully about supposing there were to be a new, richer kind of multi-layered unity a hundred years from now, what steps would we have had to take in the year of grace 2014 in order that by 2114, if the Lord has not returned by then, there would be a much richer unity? And I have to say, the good news is we've taken a lot of those steps already in my lifetime. 50 years ago, it was unthinkable that we would have the kind of easy commerce between denominations we have today. Thank God for the progress we've made. The trouble is at the moment, as we make progress, in my own denomination, we've done wonderful work with Roman Catholic um, dialogue, for instance. But as we do that, we're hamstrung because stuff in our own communion mm -hmm. is going badly wrong on other fronts. And so unity and holiness, these two pull against one another, it seems. Um, but shared Bible study locally is 
possible, desirable, why aren't we doing it, you know, even as a Lenten course, okay, you may be able to, 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 to make it last for six weeks, go for it, you know, do it, plan it for next year, um, with the other churches in your locality, actually say, could we get together in groups and do shared by, why not, um, you know, it, that can only be good, shared Eucharistic fellowship as much as is absolutely possible and probably a bit more push the boundaries a bit because i think galatians tells you you should um and uh, and so on do together everything you can do together and then see what grows out of that prayerfully that would be my my plea just on this trying to stay on this question uh it seems to me that here in the u.s uh we're very drunk on a certain kind of power and Sometimes uh, the way that Paul is read uh, feeds that. Uh, and I worried a little bit as I was hearing you say over and over again about how Paul outflanks every existing philosophy, every existing idea, takes Aristotle captive. And it seems to engender this sort of hubris, I think, in the U.S. in particular, where we think, well, we can read Paul and we don't really need to read Aristotle anymore. He sort of <laughs> overtook Aristotle and we get all of that in Paul. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be really in keeping with the central place of the cross and the fact that we should always expect to meet God as a kind of scandal in our life that will never leave us uh, steady where we are, but always invite us to learn from what exceeds us. Uh, that seems to me to also be in keeping with the spirit of the Jewish exile uh, as well. So I wonder if we might be able to speak to this tendency by paying a little bit more attention to the rhetorical nature of Paul's writings. Uh, I remember one time I was told by a professor at Duke that when I was studying there that Romans 9 to 11 was an utter anomaly. <laughs> at cross purposes, it seemed, with everything else that Paul was writing. And it seemed to me like that could only be said because the rhetoric, for example, of Galatians, so spicy, was being flattened out into some kind of easy, overarching statement about everything. Well, well, um, so how Romans, to pay attention? Was, What's that? Was, was, was that professor saying that Romans 9 to 11 was an easy, overarching statement? Uh, no. He, the, this professor seemed to think that if we didn't have Romans 9 to 11... Uh, you know, we would have no resistance whatsoever in Paul to Christian supersessionism. And it seemed to me like that was just an underestimation of the rhetorical nature of Paul's writing elsewhere about Abraham, mm -hmm. about the law, these kinds of things. But my, my point going to the questioner here is I wonder if the way that we have ignored the sort of rhetorical nature of Paul's writings and the nature of the cross and even self-effacement in that rhetoric uh, plays into a problem that we have uh, in the U.S. where he might say to us what he says to the, the Corinthians, that's not what I was telling you in the letter. That's not what I meant you to do. Uh, I wasn't talking about getting rid of everyone, uh, but only one who is a so-called brother among you and behaving in this way among you. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, uh, I there's, do. there's a sort of and style of reading. I think it's rather like the point you made earlier, and it's very, very helpful. Um, that I think what's happened you know, with the prison letters, say Colossians, um, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Paul is writing this from prison. Um, you know, 
and, and when he talks about, in, in Ephesians, the, the, the great cosmic vision that he has, again, he's writing this from prison. And we have to put Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 together with Ephesians 6, that this is the battle that we're in right now. Um, and, and so it's much more complicated. And if we just take a few verses from Ephesians 1 or from Colossians, or indeed from some of the other letters, and then if we filter them through our natural tendency in our culture, whether in my British culture or your American culture, to say, okay, we've got it, we're right, um, the rest of the world's wrong, then of course that's immediately going to fall foul and trip over its own feet. The danger is that in reacting against that abuse, we want to tone down or flatten out the extraordinary cosmic statements that Paul is making. I, I think an antidote for this could be Philippians 4, where Paul says, whatever is true, lovely, honourable, beautiful, noble, good report, any virtue, any praise, think about this stuff. And he doesn't mean if that's in the church. He's looking out at the wider world. He mm. wants them to be good citizens, good neighbours, to celebrate all the good that is there. The next sentence, though, he says, what you are to do is what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, there's a generous celebration of all the goodness of God in culture, not to imagine we've got it all in our little huddle, but at the same time, that shouldn't lead to a moral relativism. So, well, if it's all good out there, let's just go and do what they do. And that, that's a very interesting balance right there. But Philippians has that wonderful generosity of spirit about it, even though that too is written from prison. <laughs> This is bringing our conversation tonight to a close. So uh, we have an opportunity to stand and, and join together in one final song. I want to say a thank you very much, Tom, for your lecture tonight. And to Marianne and to Tommy, thank. thank you. Please join me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.